every issue is a kid's issue. So when you think about any kind of issue that presented before the public, there's actually a children's angle to that. There always is. And that angle is often very unique. You know, we have to be the voices for kids. They don't vote. They don't have PACs. So we need to be those voices and to really recognize what are their unique issues and try to get them addressed. I'm Abigail Alpern-Fish. And I'm Leo Wing. And we are your co-hosts for the first season of Voices for Human Needs, a podcast from the Coalition on Human Needs that serves as a go-to resource for both new and experienced activists working to reduce and end poverty in the United States. This season, we will talk about the most pressing anti-poverty issues currently being debated in Washington, D.C. Today, we're going to focus on how can we combine reducing child poverty with ongoing economic recovery. We will have guests from the Children's Defense Fund and First Focus, the two of many leading advocacy organizations for children. And they're both stellar members of the Coalition on Human Needs, too. We will discuss which provision from the American Rescue Plan should become permanent and the recently proposed American Family Plan from the Biden administration. Be sure to stay with us until the end to hear how listeners like you can all take action on advocacy efforts to combat child poverty in your communities. You get this question a lot. I think anybody who works on quote unquote poverty issues, like researchers, you know, academics, policymakers, politicians, it's always that like, why do we have this problem? And why is it that America is so unequal? And quite frankly, that's because leaders have not prioritized children. Intentionally, in many ways, right, divested from communities of color for generations. And we've put up barriers to well-being through our policies, right? Whether that's, again, discriminatory housing and zoning policies at the local level, up to a lack of true federal support for some of our anti-poverty policies. That's Emma Morabi joining us from the Children's Defense Fund or CDF, where she is the Director of Poverty Policy. We will hear more from Emma in just a bit about why the American Rescue Plan is such a monumental piece of legislation for children. What Emma gets at here is the long history of political challenges for activists and policymakers who lobby for comprehensive investments in our human infrastructure and the policies that provide a solid foundation for all children in America to grow up and thrive. One important example of the stubborn inequality that Emma mentions is the fact that the biggest predictor of a child's well-being in our country is what zip code they live in. In 2018, a Harvard University study by researchers Raj Chetty and Nathaniel Hendren revealed that the neighborhoods in which children grow up, in addition to the cumulative effects of federal housing, tax, and education policy, greatly impact a child's chances of experiencing upward social mobility or realizing what is so often described as the American dream. That too often where people live determines what opportunities they have in life. In this country, of all countries, a person's zip code shouldn't decide their destiny. We don't guarantee equal outcomes, but we do strive to guarantee an equal shot at opportunity in every neighborhood for every American. That was former President Obama in 2015. Social scientists have long highlighted the disproportionate effects of poverty for children and children of color specifically. Considering various social and health determinants such as environmental pollutions, levels of police brutality and gun violence, 
limited access to social services, educational resources, and economic opportunity. With all that in mind, the state of child poverty appears bleak. Poverty was already far too high among children in the U.S. before the pandemic struck, with poverty rates being the highest and most severe among young children under six. According to Columbia University's Center on Poverty and Social Policy, the poverty rate prior to the pandemic was approximately 15%, with children under 17 having the highest monthly poverty rate at 18.7% in January of 2020. Child poverty is also disproportionately experienced by children of color across America as a result of systemic racism and institutional barriers. The prevalence of poverty is calculated by the Census Bureau using a measure called poverty threshold. For example, in 2019, that threshold for a household of three people with two children under the age of 18 was only $20,598. The recent public health crisis further exacerbated hardship and poverty among children and youth, subjecting millions to hunger, interrupted education, and increased risk of housing insecurity. During the past year, analysis of Census Bureau data from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities found that more than 4 in 10 children live in a household struggling to meet basic expenses, and between 7 million and 11 million children live in households in which they are unable to eat enough because of the cost. Child poverty continued to rise and peaked in August 2020 at a rate of 21.4%. However, the rates fall unequally across racial and minority lines, with 11% of white children in poverty compared to 24% among black and Hispanic children. This is indeed a worrisome trend and a crucial target for intervention because the longer a child stays in poverty during their early years, the higher risk of lasting negative effect in their physical, mental, and emotional well-being. But there is reason to believe that progress is on its way. The recently passed American Rescue Plan is being celebrated as a step in the right direction to push forward many of the goals of longtime child policy advocates and organizers. The expansion of policies such as the Child Tax Credit, or CTC, and Earned Income Tax Credit, or EITC, are just a few of the notable program expansions that can make a real reduction in child poverty rate and improve the situations for many families in America. One of these advocates, Bruce Leslie, joins our conversation with his many years working in Washington and his 13 years as the president of First Focus on Children, a direct advocacy organization that works on a whole array of issues related to children and youth. We've been pushing for over a decade to try to cut the child poverty rate. The current child poverty rate in this country is about 50% higher than it is for adults. And it is way higher than most developed countries in the world. And so it's just unacceptable that in a nation as wealthy as ours, that we allow the child poverty rate to be as high as it is. The American Rescue Plan literally is, you know, I would say one of the biggest pieces of legislation that I've seen in all my time here in Washington. So one of the great things in the American Rescue Plan is it increases the child tax credit to $3,600 a year for families with kids for children below the age of six and $3,000 a year for kids between the age of six and 18. And then it also provided direct funding for childcare and public education. The provisions to expand the child tax credit 
would cut job poverty by by nearly half. And when you combine all these things together, Columbia University estimates that um, it would cut job poverty by 56% in this country. So just a monumental piece of legislation. These changes Bruce discusses are important alterations to the overall system used to support children in low-income or no-income families. Previously, the child tax credit structure did not allow for families to receive benefits if their parents did not work or were making extremely low incomes. The American Rescue Plan has also expanded the earned income tax credit, which provides direct cash benefits to workers without children or dependents. However, the CTC and EITC expansion are only approved temporarily for 2021. Therefore, President Biden and Congress must take action to make permanence these expansion that would continuously decrease child poverty in the U.S. One of the things also that changed is that the child tax credit would become fully refundable. So there's about a third of the kids in this country who are low income who are not getting the full child tax credit. They will now get the full child tax credit and families can opt to get that money monthly. So beginning on July 15, families can get basically this either $3,000 per child or $3,600 per child and do so on a monthly basis. So it'd be, you know, $250 or $300. And the key thing though, is making sure that you file taxes. So you file your taxes, then the IRS knows who you are and how many kids you have and and can make those checks out to families and really support families the first time in a pretty nor- enormous way. So it's, it's kind of a step toward having a child allowance in this country that many other nations have. After hearing all these wonderful things about the child tax credit, how can you get it for you or for your family? Now, if you already filed taxes before, then you don't need to worry about that at all because the money will automatically come to your direct deposit account. Now, if you didn't file taxes before and your income is less than $18,650 if you're a head of household or less than $12,400 for an individual or $24,800 for a married couple, you can simply go to childtaxcredit.gov to start filling out an online form to receive your monthly CTC payment. What you will need is the Social Security or items for you and social security number for your children. You will also be needing a reliable mailing address, an email address, an account and route number uh, in order for the payment to be directly deposited to you or simply use a mailing address. So if you haven't filed taxes before, please go to childtaxcredit.gov to start claiming your monthly CTC payment today. Next, Emma Murabi from CDF share with us the importance of bridging the gap between policy and implementation in order to make a real impact for children living in poverty. Improving implementation is really all about how to make new and expanded benefits more accessible for families who need them the most. I think what sometimes is not part of the conversation is, okay, we've expanded this policy. What does that mean to have access on the ground? What does that mean for people to actually receive these benefits in real time? And how do we better communicate not only what the policy means, like what this program, what this benefit means for children and families, but how do we get that into the right hands, into the community leaders who are so often tasked with making sure, and direct service providers are so often tasked with 
making sure that families actually get these benefits that they are entitled to and that they're their lawful benefits. And that would make a significant impact in their lives. Yeah, thank you so much. That does kind of move to my next question about why is it so important and how do you go about improving access? Because sometimes policy does not always equate to that expanded eligibility or doesn't always, as you mentioned earlier, really reach the people who need those benefits most. So how does community awareness and the advocacy that you and the Children's Defense Fund do help in that process to really meet people where they're at and increase education and awareness of these benefits? Uh, You know, we, we just need to make sure that there's multiple tools, not just online tools for families to to access um, these programs and getting it into community leaders' hands is, is I think what research shows. And I think anyone who works in communities understands that meet people where they are in their communities is at least from my perspective as a social worker, the best way um, to really make sure that people have access on the ground and are aware of it. So wherever those people are, you got to get that information to them. And then finally, in terms of expanding eligibility, we also want to make sure that the benefit follows the child. And so right now there's hundreds of thousands of kids actually who don't get the child tax credit and quite frankly won't get it um, even with this expanded eligibility because the way we define child claiming rules in, in the United States through the tax code is actually very harsh. And so, you know, we want to make sure that month to month, wherever the child moves, because so many kids live in those situations. I know I was one of those kids who had who had split custody, but I, I just bounced around between, you know, both households. We want to make sure that benefit follows the child. So that benefit goes wherever that child is living and that whoever is caring for that child, those people can split those benefits. And in instances where older youth need to claim it themselves because they have no caregivers, that they can claim it themselves. So again, there's a lot of improvements that I think we want to see in order to really make this benefit truly 100% access eligibility on the ground. Something we want to emphasize here is just how critical this moment in time is for children's advocates. Our coalition has long supported policy that center children's well-being, like expanding SNAP benefits, improving education equity, and access to childcare, just to name a few. All of these priorities have received increased attention on a national scale under the Biden administration. Prioritizing legislation that puts children first is revolutionary, but how can advocates be sure that momentum isn't lost as we move into a post-pandemic future? What is at stake for children and families experiencing poverty who would be most impacted by the proposed American Families and American Jobs plans? For so many people, right, this is the time now. It's time to go bold, be progressive, lead with values. Um, It is not a time to shrink um, federal spending. It is not a time to retreat on investing in communities and, and making real structural systemic changes um, particularly for the policies, policies that disproportionately impact Black, Latinx, Indigenous communities. For years and years, we just have been working really around the margins. And this is just a fundamental recognition in this country that we should value families and make investments in them. And so this moment in time is, is enormous because if this were to pass, I think enormous change in the lives of kids for the positive if this fails, not only would none of that happen, but the other thing is then the lesson for politicians is that doing things to improve the lives of kids doesn't work politically. So 
we don't just stand at a crossroads for kids. We stand at this vast goal that, that really divides. You know, we can take a path where we really improve the lives of kids or we could actually go backwards. And lastly, we ask our guests on how listeners like you can take action on the issue we touched on. First, let's hear from Emma. Look around your community and think, where can I get involved? Um, are there people already organizing in my community about the issues I care about? Figure out what you're passionate about and the story you want to tell, if you have a story to tell. And then you can also go to the Children's Defense Fund website, and we have um, resources on child poverty that you can read about. We have action alerts that you can sign, petitions that you can sign. You know, don't, I would say, don't spread yourself too thin and figure out a few issues or maybe even just one issue that um, you really care about and hold your member of Congress accountable. Call them, email them, write letters if you can, and make sure that they know what your voice and what you want them to do. An action item is very important for them. If you want them to sign a bill, if you want them to sign onto a letter, if you want them to speak out in support or in opposition to something, they represent you and you vote them in. And the best way to spark change is being a constituent, is being is living where you are and get involved as much as you can. What Emma says is true for advocates of any age. Bruce spoke to the special opportunities that young people and their families have in taking action and centering their own experiences into their advocacy, especially with conversations about why certain policies must be invested in and supported by policymakers. If we can afford to spend $2 billion a day at the Department of Defense, we can absolutely make investments in our nation's children. And I think if people really ask their policymakers to sort of center children and families in their policymaking, too often they just don't. I really want to emphasize that, you know, we don't, we shouldn't just make investments in kids because of their future. Um, we should also do it for their here and now. And kids should not live, you know, no child should go to bed hungry, for example. And, and that's one of the reasons why this is just such an important fight. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate it also as I'm someone in the realm of youth organizing and a part of a lot of organizations that do that. And I do think it's important, like you said, to have adults speaking on behalf of kids, but also knowing that young people can get involved with their voice. Because as you said, if they call the people that are representing them and feel they're not doing their job justice, that matters. So we really appreciate you noting how important the voice of constituents is for policymakers. I think you make a fantastic point, which is people really do need to lean in and listen to kids more. They have interests about certainly where the you know our world is going and our country is heading. But even on a day-to-day basis, like kids know who the best teachers are in their schools. Kids know what kinds of things are lead to bullying? For example, kids know youth organizing is really critical and youth voice should be lifted. And one of the ways for adults to do that is to really lean in and listen and, and not discount those voices because um, kids uniquely know what's going on in their lives. And if we would listen to them more often, I think, I think there would be enormous improvements in their lives and we could stop problems more quickly, but also really improve um, systems and and the way things work for them. I mean, they they know. And people, I think sometimes adults think, oh, well, you know, I was a kid, so I know. And you're not living in the in the moment. And kids are, and it is, and society is very different in a lot of ways. 
Um, so I'm hopeful um, because I don't think we've seen, even in the last recession, which was also devastating, this type of federal investment. And I think for anybody who works on federal issues, you have to be in it for the long haul because it's a marathon, not a sprint. And it can be really, really hard to feel like there's hope. But I, I get hope from the people I work with, from the communities we care about, from seeing just everyday people be engaged. And so I think if you can hold on to that and know that structural change takes a long time at the federal level, um, that we can all be hopeful. And we will all hopefully live to fight another day and um, make these next two COVID packages, whether they're the American Jobs Plan or they're the American Families Plan, through the rest of the year, you know, we're going to keep fighting, I think, and we will make sure that um, leaders and politicians, you know, um, fight for our communities and fight for children and family well-being. Yes, just thank you so much for also what you've just said really is inspiring to know that this process takes time. This process requires partners. It requires current reflection. And I'm hoping, like you said, that we can keep up the spirit of really addressing structural inequities and inequalities and really addressing problems that have existed for a long time, but knowing that it takes more than just one person to tap in and make a change. So thank you for being one of those people. We really appreciate it. Our next bonus episode will continue the conversation about the fight to reduce child poverty, this time with a focus on advocacy efforts to increase paid leave and childcare opportunities for working parents. We will be joined by Joy Spencer, a mom and advocate with Moms Rising, who also serves as the Executive Director of Equity Before Birth, a nonprofit that provides paid parental leave and childcare opportunities for Black families in North Carolina. Stay tuned to hear more from Joy and her recent experiences testifying before U.S. Congress. We hope you enjoyed our second episode of the Voices for Human Needs podcast. Please subscribe and follow us now wherever you get your podcasts, share with a friend or colleague, and stay tuned for our next episode. Also, you can learn more about today's speakers and actions you can take in the fight to end child poverty by visiting our page on the Voices for Human Needs blog at bit.ly slash Voices for Human Needs. Special thanks to the Coalition on Human Needs intern, Catherine Gorey, for her contributions to this episode. And finally, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can search the Coalition on Human Needs. I promise we'll be the first one that pops up. Till next time.